I was at a dinner last year with business leaders who are also philanthropists and mentioned to one of the largest donors there that direct cash transfers to impoverished communities is the most effective way to alleviate poverty. And what did he say to that? He was annoyingly skeptical. <laughs> he followed the old hard line of philanthropy that is built on the idea that you can't trust people to help themselves. And the work and research of Give Directly demonstrates the exact opposite, that giving money to people enables them to make the best decisions to lift themselves out of poverty. Join us to learn more about innovative nonprofit practices, as well as how to find greater impact and fulfillment at work with the best nonprofits out there. Welcome to the Be Social Change podcast, your go-to resource for weekly personal professional development to help you build a successful social impact career. I'm Marco Salazar. And I'm Jen Lashansky, and we're the team behind Be Social Change. Over the past decade, we've helped tens of thousands of professionals and entrepreneurs grow their social impact careers, and we're excited to help you do the same. In the podcast, you'll learn new skills and strategies from inspiring social impact leaders who have built careers at socially conscious companies, innovative nonprofits, and within government. We're so happy you found this podcast and look forward to helping you build a meaningful, fulfilling, and successful social impact career. Let's get into it. When I first learned about Give Directly, I read all about their model and the research that proves just how effective their work is at addressing global poverty. Their work breaks the model of traditional philanthropy in really creative ways. Luckily, there's plenty of evidence to prove just how effective it is. And our awesome guest this week shares more with us about the model, as well as his own journey from the for-profit media world to working for Give Directly. He shares with us tips to effectively switch sectors, manage people through their reward languages, and find greater fulfillment through work. Tyler Hall also shares more about managing global teams and marketing and communications for nonprofits. His advice is meaningful for everyone looking to increase their creativity, impact, and fulfillment at work. Let's dive in, Jen. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to the podcast. Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me, Jen. We're so glad that you're here. And I'm wondering if we can just start off by hearing a little bit more about what you're currently doing in the field of social impact. Sure. My full-time job and main work is at Give Directly, which is a direct cash nonprofit. And what that means is we give people living in poverty grants that they don't pay back. So it's unconditional cash to people in extreme poverty. And I work as the director of communications. Oh, that's awesome. What's interesting is that's a very different type of giving model than the typical giving models. Can you share a little bit more about why you utilize cash versus non-cash goods? Yeah, there's a few reasons. One of the big ones is that the things that keep people stuck or trapped in poverty are very multifaceted and it varies neighbor to neighbor in a given village or in a given community. And so we find that uh, outside thousands of miles away, experts might feel like they have the perfect new solution, but really these issues are so heterogeneous that it's better to just give people the money themselves. They can often address their needs better than we can. Also, it's more efficient, right? So rather than if you do know that everybody on this block needs a new gas stove, it costs a lot to get that from one place to another and ship it and all these things. That money ends up not really supporting the local economy. Whereas if you just send money directly, extremely low overheads, it gets spent locally, it helps improve the overall economy. But yeah, and it, like last thing is really allows for this like dignity of choice. People in extreme poverty, if you go to these communities, they're often being visited by the next great fundraised idea uh, comes through to prop up their experiment and then might not come back or maybe are overwhelming them with these sorts of projects. 
cash is often their first chance to truly make their own choice and have an amount of money that they've never been able to really control before. So that's why we do it. We think it works well, provides dignity, and it's also lets the dollar go further that you donate. Yeah. I know that Marcos and I have both been big fans of Give Directly since we heard about it in the first place. And I think what I would be curious about is what's the story? How did it get started? How did people come to this understanding? Yeah, a few things happened at the same time. One, there was some early research in the early 2000s that was showing direct cash programs had really positive impacts, which maybe today doesn't feel so surprising, but back then was catching a lot of folks off guard. There were programs in Mexico and Brazil that were nationally run. There's research studies coming out that this is really good. And then at the same time in sub-Saharan Africa, starting in Kenya first, there was this thing called mobile money that started. Basically, most folks didn't have bank accounts or formal banks of any kind in, in the area, but there was a company that started called M-Pesa that let people hold and send and transfer money through a SIM card on what we'd think of as a dumb phone, like a simple cheap phone. And this suddenly brought millions and now over 1.2 billion people into being banked on mobile money. This meant we now had a conceivable way to take donors' money and send it directly to people who were extremely poor in these parts of the world. It doesn't have to be a government program in Brazil. It can be done by an NGO. And so this was what happening while a few uh, brainiacs were getting their PhDs at Harvard and MIT, and they formed together a, a giving circle that was the beginning of Give Directly and started very small in 2008. And then it became a formal NGO in 2011 in Kenya, and then has grown ever since. It's amazing. And one of the things that Directly has put such an emphasis on is the data and is showing that this is such a smart, proven model. And already before even having the data, I think the dignity of helping people choose is worth it in and of itself. And then there's so much data. I was at a conference in Mexico last year and I was sitting around with a bunch of like big business leaders and they were all talking about philanthropy and all these things. And I brought up Give Directly's model and they were incredulous. They're like, no, you, you can't just give money directly to people. And it was so clear that basically people with a lot of wealth are dubious of how people spend money, even though they are spending money with unlimited kind of restrictions. That's a whole other story. But I just wanted to say it's like what you do and how you share that research, I think, is very helpful for getting as many people on board as possible. It's fascinating to hear that story, Jen, because I think that as for as many people as think we hear all the time, every, oh, everybody knows this works now. Like you'd have to be a fool to still not trust people with money. There's still many folks that haven't been on that journey. And so as a communicator, it's an interesting job to both keep folks who are engaged who have believed in this since the mid-2000s and, and keep them on the journey of being interested while also communicating the same basic idea over and over again to get those business folks that you met to change some of their mind and undo some of their biases. Yeah, yeah. and I think what's interesting is those folks that still have those biases are actually thinking in not so great of a business mindset. And the reason why is like when you're building a product or a service, part of your job in kind of a lean startup model is ensuring that your assumptions aren't driving the product or service. And I think that what you all are doing is breaking those assumptions and not assuming that people in philanthropy or in development or working in third world countries assume better than poor people or people that are disadvantaged that you have a better solution or you know better than they do. And I think that's the real value that you provide. And through your job is trying to change those mindsets. So I guess from a communication standpoint, what does your day-to-day -day look like? And what are the type of things that you do in your communications role? 
I'm sure everyone who comes on the show says they have no day to day and it always changes, but I will say that as well. <laughs> I'd say that my, most of my time is spent on just like three basic areas. One is we're very focused on how to capture the story of the impact that we're doing in a way that is human and draws folks into thinking about extreme poverty. It's of course very far away from the lives lived by our donors. And so helping the recipients of this aid tell their own stories, producing documentary, live story feeds, all these sorts of things. That's a big part of the job. We want to give as much of the platform that we have to these folks, because essentially they're the ones with the creative innovations that are solving poverty. We're the ones who just gave them the money. The second big part of what we do, our communications is we spend a lot of time working with press. Our press strategy is really focused on how to drive more dollars to people in extreme poverty. So that rather than work so much on press releases or like announcements, it's really trying to build long relationships with big profile writers and people in top tier outlets and bringing them over to visit the programs. And then I guess the third area is like editorial direction. So Give Directly tries to be a pretty specific brand that stands out in the way it presents itself from some other INGOs. So we try to bring a lot of candor to our blog writing about our own mistakes or showing people our own decisions. When research comes out, whether it's extremely positive, somewhat positive, perhaps inconclusive, we, I also work a lot on trying to translate those into disseminations that people can understand, communicating with donors, keeping everybody following our work in the most like transparent way possible. That's awesome to hear. How big is the whole Give Directly team? The entire organization is in 11 countries and it fluctuates between eight and 900 staff. And that includes most of those folks are in the countries you work in who are out enrolling, following up with, or ensuring the kind of safeguarding of the recipients. So it sounds like a large number, but it's very much doesn't represent like the back office. So one of the things I get from how you're talking about the work is in the U.S. is part of the role just basically to be a part of the channeling and funneling of attention, funds, and resources to the staff and the people on the ground in the nations that you serve. Yeah, exactly. The, the role is to definitely help give them the dollars they need to deliver to folks. They're living, we've definitely grown a lot, but we, we work in countries that have 50, 75 million people who are below the extreme poverty line. And we reached 1.5 million people globally to date. So there's a lot more potential for money. So our main focus is like, how do we get more money spread around to the folks at the bottom? And the other, I, we do a lot of close collaboration with the, I do a lot of close collaboration with the folks who work on the ground in the country, because when they're coming up with new program ideas, they also want these things to be interesting to the outside world. Are they legible to Western donors? And how do we best create programs that can help spread the story of the impact? So in that sense, it's, it's a collaborative process with those folks. And then I, in country, the U.S. team is a lot of the folks focus on fundraising, but we also have folks on the communications team who are based in country and are out shooting these films or building relationships to communities that they grew up there. Amazing. Well, so tapping and diving a little bit deeper into your own social impact career, how did you get drawn to this work? How did you find out about Give Directly and what drew you to the work? Yeah, I used to work in television and I had some doubts. And so then I wanted to look to do something else with a similar set of skills around like video producing, writing, storytelling. And I had a conversation with a friend who is an effective altruist and he's of the animal rights variety, but told me to just go to one of these meetups they have. 
So I went to a meetup and the meetup was going to be a book group to read The Life You Can Say by Peter Singer, which is a really distilled, approachable explanation of his philosophy on effective altruism. So I diligently read the book before the book group and they mentioned Give Directly in it. And I looked them up because I was a fan of generally a cash-based poverty assistance stuff in the US and saw that opening and applied. And then I went to the EA meetup and most people had actually just not read the book, which is always a nightmare in a book group. And that was yeah my first and last time going to one of those. But at that point, the process had started with Give Directly's application and the, yeah, that's how I found out about them. Tyler, I hope you'll forgive me, but I got to double click on the, I had doubts. And I'm curious if you can share a little bit more about that, because I don't think that you're the only person who's had doubts like that in their career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Careers are nothing but doubt. Yeah. For context, I worked in late night television for six or seven years, worked at Colbert's, both of his shows. And then I worked for a long time on Full Frontal with Samantha B, which is a late night show as well. And it was a really exciting job. And of course, a lot of what drew us to that work at these shows was its impact within the conversation around politics and policy and a feeling that it mattered in the real world more than, I don't know, sliving people on Nickelodeon like this maybe mattered. And so I think that assumption that a lot of people held was stressed by the Trump administration and the effect that satire news seemed to have that we all grew up on under John Stewart's era and Colbert's era with Bush on started to feel to me a bit under question, like how much were you actually changing the conversation or how much were you just fiddling while Rome burned? Where I guess some of the thoughts were going through my head. That's drew me to wonder if there was a more impactful place to be working. And I had always really enjoyed partnering with NGOs on the show. We would often do programs that would draw attention or raise money for these groups and they appreciated the money. But one of the things they often would appreciate even more is that we made a five minute video package that explained what they do in a way that wasn't boring. And that was like hugely important for groups that we partnered with, which I think we didn't even hold in our mind as a goal, but it did make me think, oh yeah, people who were skilled, entertaining storytellers worked closely in these movements. These movements might actually be more impactful, but they wait around for television shows to help them out. So that was a bit of the doubt journey that led me to looking this way. Wow. Interesting. So then as you were in that process of applying to give directly, what are some of the biggest pain points from switching to an entertainment-based career or for-profit career into a nonprofit career? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, One thing that I think is important is I wasn't like any other job seeker where I applied to like dozens of places to explore my options and I give directly to the one that worked out. But one pain point was that people just did not think that my experience was compelling to work in communications. Like they're like, you never written a newsletter or done a NGO report or whatever. So like, why you're not really qualified, which fair enough. I'm a little like, uh, I think it's still defensive to be like, I know, but I made television that people electively watched in their free time, which I think is a good sign. But it was still hard to convince people that the skills were transferable or that I could be a quick study. And there's a strong cultural value at Give Directly of bringing in people from outside of the NGO stream and really like assuming that they can learn the ropes and we'll bring in some new talent. There's folks from the tech world, from management consulting, from I worked with an amazing compliance manager who used to own and run a bar. 
and knew how to get people to do what they're supposed to do on time and brought those skills in. So there's a lot of trusting people to make that growth. But that was a big pain point in general with the industry. And then I think one thing that always made us paranoid about nonprofits in the television world was that they all seemed to move at very slow paces and didn't have a bias towards action, which television is like brilliantly biased towards action because you have a deadline every night or every week, depending on how your show works. So you couldn't really spend too much time in a meeting going down a sinkhole because it had to be on TV or you're moving on. That is not, that's of course, like there's still a difference, but I will say being in this, I've seen a lot of NGOs, not just give directly where everybody really wants to avoid that problem. And so tries to hold a strong culture of like ambitious, quick productivity, but that can be a pain point. If you work with a partner organization where you're like, they're going to answer their email like twice a month. And that's just how it works. <laughs> Which can be really incredibly frustrating, but I appreciate what you're speaking to and that you've had the perspective of multiple sectors here which a lot of our community is also seeking to gain, right? Moving from one sector to the other. So in knowing that GiveDirectly is more of the exception than the rule when it comes to attracting for-profit creative talent or for-profit talent period, why do you think that more social impact organizations don't make an effort to attract cross-sectorally? I don't know. I'm new to this swamp. So I think someone would have a better <laughs> answer because I've only really worked at one of these places. Why don't they make more of an effort? Right? I'm not sure. You have, I mean. Or what are some of the challenges? I think one of the things that you just pointed out is that their social impact organizations, specifically nonprofits, may have kind of, a, and older ones may have a very structured way of thinking that they need a degree or they need X, Y, Z in order to come in. Whereas I think in the for-profit world, it's the, a degree isn't a barrier to entry. And it's really, you're building like a portfolio career. You have a set of experiences that you know that you can get things done. And I think some nonprofits that give directly might be a little bit different because they're newer, might have challenges in seeing the value in, in, in that. Yeah, I think that there is some pedigree things. And I think there's also a fear that there's, of course, an idiosyncratic way that things get done in the sector, in a social impact sector. And the trade-off you make by bringing in some sort of bullish, fast-moving person from an outside sector is that they might knock into some China now and then because they don't know all the graces and the spaces and things. And so you try to do that as little as possible. You try to have some people around who know them better and can help guide it. But there's, of course, risks to that. And you don't also want to be like seen as these sort of headstrong disruptors because you don't make a lot of friends that way. So you have to like have a balance of, yes, we bring people in from the outside, but we don't think we're better than you. And we don't think like you've done everything wrong. You have to be careful with that framing too, or you will be a lonely actor in a complicated <laughs> space. Yeah. I think you're spot on. One thing that comes to mind for me too, is like the, uh, to your point about the idiosyncrasies of the nonprofit sector, terms that are used generally across the board, for example, most for-profit businesses, we use so differently in the nonprofit sector and vice versa. So literally just translating what you're actually doing becomes more difficult when it comes to anything cross nonprofit. But I think that it's actually an issue that you're speaking to that goes both directions where it's also like a lot of for-profit entities, I think are probably a little bit more open to hiring nonprofit professionals, but the same challenges still arise where it's like, why aren't for-profit uh, entities seeing the value of somebody who's worked on the ground in a nonprofit, et cetera. It's an interesting conundrum all around that we try to help people think about how do you translate your skills? How do you move cross sectors if it's really what you want to be doing or where you find your purpose? So to that point, I, would, I wanted to ask you to, Tyler, one of the things that has become a big topic in the social impact space is purpose. 
what does that term mean to you? How do you take it? What does it feel like? Can you say more about what it means to you? I'm trying to make sure I answer oh, yeah. it right away. Like purpose well, for like employees feeling purpose or the mission of the organization or how do you mean it? More so on an individual basis. So- what I would say, let's rephrase the question in that, do you feel like you have found purpose maybe in a greater capacity here at Give Directly than other kind of jobs that you've had? Or it could be that it, you did find purpose at that particular time in your career, but that you're living in, and working in a more purposeful way. Yeah, I think the change that I've made was because of declining purpose. So I felt a strong sense of purpose in my work for most of the time I was in television and you have to move with the tides and feel like a strong sense of it here. But I think it's a fabulous question in general, thinking about purpose. I think that NGOs as a larger, the larger ones, uh, the like non-grassrootsy ones struggle with this a lot. I have close friends who are community organizers, grassroots organizers. And if you do work with them, what is this purpose setting is constant every day, every meeting. You don't start doing something until you check in about what you're bringing to the work while you're there. I have a friend who's a tenants organizer in Kansas City, and she calls it their joyful rebellion. So reminding themselves why they're there for joyful rebellion, especially if the next thing you're about to talk about is like everyone paying dues on time or something very dry that can start to make you feel estranged from the work. So it's something that I think about bringing into my own team is that every once in a while, taking stock of the thing that reminded you why you're here. And that could be because of a story of a person that has been helped by a cash transfer that is moving to you. Or maybe you took a call from your old job who needed a question answered and you talked about the price of bulldozers for a while and you remember why you're not a consultant and you remember why you're there. Like there's lots of things that remind us why we made this choice. But I think far too often in the less grassroots NGOs, We'll go very long time without stopping and reminding ourselves why we did this, why we, for most people, made sacrifices of income or work at a less profitable place, don't have stock options, things like this, because we have a reason that we want to be there. So I think it's very vital when you run a team to keep your own team in touch with this idea, especially when you're on the fundraising side, the policy side, you're far away from the communities themselves. Yeah, and I appreciate what you just shared. First, even going back to saying that you felt that you had felt purpose in your career before Give Directly. And then I think the thing that I think about when it comes to purpose is I don't think people find their purpose or discover their purpose. It's not just like some end destination and then you feel like you find it and then it's puppy dogs and ice creams and rainbows. It's really that how do you find purpose through your work and on a daily basis? And I think what you pointed out, it's one of the things that Jen is really good at when it comes to her work is this vision piece and this mission piece. And what you were saying with your team about making sure that, yes, you have to get stuff done and your head's down, but recognizing that the work that you're doing does have does link up to something much larger of the impact that you're creating. And as a leader, what you're sharing, being able to do that with your team is pretty vital in order to keep them motivated and for them to feel purpose in their work. Yeah, I think there's a lot to steal from for-profits in this. If you think about it, they have a harder problem, which is they have to make it seem like it really matters that you're making new widgets every day to just choose a generic company. And these widgets will sell at a high amount and hopefully the company will IPO one day and we'll all get a lot of money. And you're like, that's not a very motivating set of things. <laughs> but they, I think, are expert at being like, no, we're in a community and the thing we do is actually these widgets really change people's lives. Here's some stories of our customers who loved the widget. 
And they're brilliant at making you there. And I'm describing like large tech companies, obviously, and things like this, that keep there's a strong sense of purpose to being a Google or a Facebooker or someone like this, that I think NGOs could do a little less assuming that just because we are in this space, the social impact space, that we don't need the same level of reminders and validation and cultural norms around why we've made a choice to be there. Yeah. And one of the things that I'd love to to share with our audience is we've talked about Give Directly in your recent career before that, but what were some of the past experiences, whether it was growing up, whether it was earlier in your career, that kind of, that led you on this trajectory? Just the way, just how I grew up, I think I, I grew up in a house that was like very gripped by the Iraq war. And uh, my mom was mm. protesting like at the main intersection in our small city in North Carolina, like all the time. And I'd be driving up from high school and she'd be putting in her time to try to put her shoulder against the machine of a thing she didn't agree with. And that the satire news war, genre that was birthed around the same time felt very motivating. And then I, I also grew up in a church and I was in the Boy Scouts and there was like Habitat for Humanity reigned supreme because we're in like Carter country down there. And it just felt very obvious that you're supposed to do some amount of service in your life. And so I think that was a big draw for me to the work in general. And then became interested in comedy as like a craft and film as a craft, like in school and really enjoyed the idea of working in late night and being able to have a voice or a way to produce every single day seemed way more interesting to me than making a movie come out every five years. So that also like being part of that conversation and having an immediate response to things was appealing. So those are some of those things I think early on that made a big impression on me. That's amazing. And then Taylor, I wanted to ask too, as you were making that transition, as you were moving from a career that you'd held for a long time, what did you find successful as far as making the transition? You shared that you sent out a lot of applications. Did you also find opportunities to network or what was helpful for you for getting to where you are at GiveDirectly? It was winter 2020 that this was happening. So I couldn't go oh, wow. network anywhere. Yeah. I was working in TV right up until just before COVID and wanted to take a little break to think about this. And then the world was like, how about a long break? Then by the time I was figuring this out, yeah, it was all pretty remote. I definitely explored a bit. I did a lot of work during the 2020 election doing democracy access work, rise to the polls and canvassing and voter information and ballot curing and such. And so that was a good chance to get like deep into these nonprofit space and see how they operate and see some of the strengths and weaknesses and build some connections. And it was also a, a blessed way to beat other people during COVID because everyone was like, it's worth the risk to try to <laughs> save democracy. So that was also a plus. Yeah. So that was a strong information about both. Yeah. Like I said, what I enjoyed and what I didn't. So I think the volunteering or trying to get deep into a nonprofit is good rather than taking your first leap at like a, oh, well, I really like the sound of that organization, so I should work there. Because I think coming from a for-profit or just any specific sector before you go to the next one, you're flying pretty blind. It's dating in a foreign country, like you don't even know the cues to look for. <laughs> so I think that's how I felt. Like I don't really even know like how to tell the good ones from the bad ones. It's the rigorous ones from the kind of soft around the edges doesn't do a whole lot ones. And that just getting in the space and meeting a lot of people during that election taught me how to spot things better. 
Yeah. This is the question that I was going to follow up with earlier because you did mention when you went to the meetup and you did a number of things. And it was really those kind of networking and those connections that really have an impact on your career. And do you feel like networking was an integral part of kind of your overall career? Oh, yeah. And TV for sure. TV is a nightmare if you're thinking about listening to this podcast and you want to reverse engineer what I did. It's so hard <laughs> to break in. Jobs are not listed anywhere. There's no reading of resumes blindly or openly. That was speaking a little bit reductively, but that's basically the case everywhere I have worked. You, a job opens, a small job opens, somebody puts out a call to their friends or peers from other shows and says, I'm trying to find a really great producer, any recommendations. And then you get five resumes, you interview them, you hire someone, you move on. And so that's just hard to break into. So it's all networking. It's all you read the trades, you keep your ear to the ground, you're going to bars, even when you're tired of going to bars, just to try to figure out where his work is. So yeah, the NGO space, at least the one I've worked in, it just has so much less nepotism implies like family relationship, so much less, oh, my buddy is wants to apply, let's just make this work. You have a much fairer shot if you can see the job open. And I'm a testament to that because I didn't know anybody in this organization and just applied and then managed to make it through the thing. I think networking matters because it'll teach you a lot about what you're looking for. But I've found that this social impact space is far more ethical and fair about allowing an open field where you don't get as much leg up as you do in the entertainment world, which is a lot of handshakes and who you know. Thanks for sharing that. And along those lines for, let's say, social impact job seekers, whether that is a nonprofit or whether that is a socially conscious business, would you have any specific advice from your own experience that you'd like to share with them? No, nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing brilliant. I, it's a numbers game. I think that mm-hmm. I tried to avoid the temptation of falling too deeply in love with an opportunity because look, it, it might be a zombie posting. Like they, they're probably, they could be five minutes away from filling it and there it is. So you have to care enough about it to write your res- your cover letter and passionately research it. But there's like a critical distance you have to maintain. And remember, I applied to over 100 jobs in that period, which is a bit psychotic and it's not healthy, but it is what I did. I tried to prove to myself, like, I can't get too fixated. Like the number of people who won't write you back is quite high. It's not always that they're cold. It's like they might have closed it or already filled it or all these different things. So my, that's my big advice is to try to stay excited, but also keep moving forward. Yeah. Taylor, thank you for saying that. I can't tell you how many people were like, I found the one. And then 95% of rejections have nothing to do with even the person being an applicant. It just has to do with internal fills or there's a change in direction within the position. And it's really hard for people to remember that as they're going through this process. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. And, no, and I, yeah. And Jen, I think through some of the people that we've done career coaching with, you're absolutely right. And it's how do you set those expectations properly so that you don't get emotionally bogged down by kind of the job search? Yes, isn't the best. What we try to do when we coach people is try to use it as an opportunity for personal and professional growth. But it's hard to keep that mindset when you're sometimes getting rejected by so many organizations or not even hearing from them. And then so for those that are already in a social impact career, and you shared a couple of things about what you do with your team. As a leader, what's the, some of the advice about managing or leading within a social impact organization in your own leadership experience and growth? Yeah, I think that a big thing I try to pay attention to is how people's reward language works. I think it's like a love language metaphor almost, where I think folks are here for the cause and the purpose. And I spoke to that. They're of course being like paid 
but you can't put too much stock in like they're not here to rack up a lot of money. So then another important thing to think of what are the other forms of reward? And that varies person to person. So I love having my name on things because like that's why I came from a creative field, like being like, I made this thing pretty much end to end and there's my name and it's on my resume in my reel. And so I like that. I have other people I work with or who work under me who hate that. <laughs> they don't want their name on a thing, but they do want to, to be quietly known that they overcame some crazy obstacle that they feel reward in is that like finished products look simple, but they would love to be able to share what they did to put it. That makes them feel really rewarded. And so you have to like really get to know the people you work with to find the ways that give them that fulfillment. Cause it's one of the few extra things we can offer in a kind of compensation way is to make sure that people's due is being given and acknowledging that it's very different to each person, what they want, how they want to be celebrated. Maybe they just load the whole idea of celebration and you can give them some other form of recognition. So that's a big way of keeping them motivated and leading the team. Another reason I wanted to switch careers that's not really to do a social impact is that there's a sort of chaoticness to the entertainment industry where it's more like you're a band of roaming militias where you're like, okay, I need a bunch of people to work on this for the next six months and then the show will be done. And then we're all going to go back out to the wild and get hired by a new militia. And so there's not a lot of attention to HR, personal growth, development, performance reviews. I've worked at a number of places and I'm not necessarily the ones that I've named that didn't have an HR department, which is like insane. If you think about the <laughs> climate we're in between all the conversations we're having about workplace and harassment, to not even have an HR team is a great sign that you're not investing in like the health and growth of the people there. It's just up to them. Yeah. So I wanted to go to a place where there was postmortems and critical feedback and, and proactive candor among your coworkers to, in a way that created psychological safety. Like, I think that all sounded like business jargon to me in my twenties. And then by the time I was a bit older, I was like, I love a little bit of psychological safety right now. <laughs> yeah. So then I had to learn how to do that as a leader. I came from a space where if you did any of that, it was elected and kind to a place where now people are actually really expecting you to care and mentor and manage people in a way that's like quite intimate. It's like really, really it's real relationships with people over the course of months to years. My advice is to take that part very seriously and also come at it with the humility that I had, which is, I don't know anything. There are great books. There are great mentors. There's a lot of good systems to use to make sure that you're showing up for people and it's not as simple as like treating somebody like you treat your friend. Being a manager is, or a leader is much, much different um, and full of very specific obligations that you should be fulfilling. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing all of that. And it just reminds me of two things for a kind of social impact career, a job seeker and a leader is culture is just so important. And it's even more important now and really thinking if you're a job seeker, is this the type of culture that I want to be in and, and trying to do research around that to make sure that the organization is a good fit for you. And then as a leader within the organization, it's not just your professional growth. It's not just like skill-based growth and the hard skill, but psychological and those life skills and recognizing that you can contribute to many of the things that you just described. Yeah. Along those lines, Tyler, I wanted to ask, you've shared a lot of helpful insights and your work is really interesting. One of our favorite questions to ask people who are getting great impact work done in amazing ways is, do you have a favorite kind of creativity or productivity habits, routines, or tools that you use? Yeah. You got to block all that social media. That's good. <laughs> yes. Even if your job like mine includes. I was going to say. Accounts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to use it every hour unless you like work for the president. Just like you can block it. I block it from nine to five every day. 
And I'm like, unless there's a crisis, uh, then I just, I'll just check it in the morning, check it at the end of the day, and I'm done. So don't be ashamed to do that. A lot of really smart people are building a machine to try to get you to look at it all the time. So it takes extreme measures to not look at it. I also, I find when you balance a job where you're being asked to be creative or original with also dealing with sundry tasks that come across your plate all the time, that you have to block time when you're going to be able to do creative work. And it should be when you're the most pure or primed to do that might vary for people. But I just came back from three months of working in Nairobi and met nobody in America was talking to me in the morning. And then I suddenly realized I had five times as many good ideas because the first two hours of my day were quiet. I stumbled on that by accident, but you should pay attention to the times that you suddenly are a fountain of new thoughts and then learn how to block that time. And I think do it when you have nothing to solve. That's every writer will give you that advice, but you have to show up and keep asking ideas to come forward, not just think, oh, I have something to do. Now's the time to be creative. That's also when a lot of the best stuff comes out. So I take that part pretty seriously. And I think it's rare for people to think about their jobs, creatives at these companies. Like they might think that it's a part of their job is to be original or part of their job is to create things, but the sacredness that you have to give yourself can feel odd in a corporate or mm. company environment to be like, I need to like light a candle and turn off the Wi-Fi and just like noodle around. But that's how good ideas come for me. And I think for a lot of the other creators I know. So sure. yeah, that's a big piece of advice I have. Yeah, I hesitate to call it productivity because it's like intentionally not productivity, but yeah. yeah. But be able to give yourself that time to be able to do that, I think is hugely important, especially in the context of a kind of 24 seven, you can always be online and be able to pause to be able to do that and just be, which I think is important. So as we wrap up in this last question, is there any piece of career advice that you wish that you had at the beginning of your career that would have been supportive or helpful? I think you have to make a lot of choices before you know anything when you're first starting out your career. So I'm going to answer a kind of different question, which is what's something that I wasn't sure if it was the right call that proved to be the right call. And I, mm. and one of those tough choices was when I first was working in television, I was interning and they were like, do you want to become a production assistant? And most people would be like, yeah, of course I want to keep working here. But I also thought, wait a second, this would mean I'd be buying the props for jokes I didn't write. And that would probably be like really frustrating. In a way. Mm -hmm. Also, this job, it takes 15 hours a day, which isn't a problem unto itself. And they should unionize. But all those things felt like it's going to keep me away from the thing I want to do, even though it's right there. And it made me actually turn it down and go out and try to find my own work that was more fulfilling. And I think that it's early on, it might be easy to fall in love with an opportunity or a company that sounds big and it'll make your parents proud and they can put it in a Christmas newsletter and it'll be great. But ask yourself what the work you're doing every day is because you, hopefully have a lot of choices. If you have a college degree and you feel relatively stable, you could work at a place that has no name, be doing better work every day. That'll make you smarter and also just make you more fulfilled. And then eventually those bigger places will have you back in a job that you actually want. So trading like comfort or status for trying to pursue the thing you want, I think is my big advice for people you aren't going to have a good career in the first three years of your career. So it might as well be a fun one and like trust that things will work out later. So yeah, no one gave me that advice, but that was the fork in the road that I thought was the right ultimately validated. And if you ever want to hear all the bad choices I've made, 
we could do another episode, but that's one that was the right choice. <laughs> love it. Love it. That is a perfect way to end a conversation. So thanks so much, Tyler, for being on the show. And where could people find more about you as well as Give Directly? Sure. GiveDirectly.org. Check it out. 90% of any dollar you donate goes directly to someone in extreme poverty to spend. And the rest is the cost of getting it there. So read the website, be incredulous and see if it convinces you. Give me your notes on how we could make it better. And if you want to learn more about my work or see some of my other work, I have a website also. TylerGHall.com is the website. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tyler. Definitely you want to send people your way. Really appreciate the work that you're doing and the time you shared with us today. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. I loved hearing all about your journey, the work about Give Directly, and just offered really great advice to our community. So thank you so much. Yeah, good luck to everyone out there. I hope you find it something even better than giving people money. Excited to see <laughs> what impacts people come up with. Tyler's advice and feedback about leading teams and creating time in his schedule is super valuable. Yeah, I also love sharing more about the mission and methodology of Give Directly, Marcos, because they're doing something that's sort of radical and yet totally logical and proven. Yep. And his insights on how to manage global teams is seriously interesting too. I love the concept of reward languages. I also highly recommend checking out the hilarious clip of him sitting on Stephen Colbert's lap for a segment on the Colbert Report. It's on his website and it's amazing. It is pretty damn funny. So many gems from this convo and we'll have more next week too. Yeah, see you then. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you liked the episode, help us grow the impact of this podcast by taking a quick second to leave us a five-star rating and review telling us what you liked. And please share the podcast with anyone you think could benefit from this type of career and business advice. Word of mouth is the number one way we can grow the podcast and the impact we have on people's careers. And don't forget to visit besocialchange.com for free social impact career resources through our newsletter. See you next week.